Okay, so the first early concept is, I think it's looking at lots of different games and thinking, okay, you know, the traditional RPG approach is you've got, you know, you've got attributes or, you know, ability scores, you've got skills, you might, and then you've got funky extra abilities. And the interesting question is, do you really need all three? And what skill goes with what ability score? And okay, this is not far from being the first RPG to do this. It's a case of, okay, let's jettison one of those three. If you ask for recommendations for an urban fantasy RPG, it's likely the first game to be brought up will be Liminal. I sit down with Paul Michener and we discuss where the concept of Liminal came from. What came first, the genre or the mechanics? Did he anticipate it being such a successful Kickstarter? Of all the supplements, are there certain ones he thinks you should start with? Paul was an absolute joy as a guest. We had a lot of fun and I learned why this is seen as such a landmark game. Our supporters on Patreon allow me to bring content like this to you on a weekly basis. A quick shout out to some of our newest patrons. Jesse Miller, Tony Vicinda, John Harper, Sean and Navi Drake, Harrigan, John Richardson, Arjun Potsma, George DeBoos, and of course, Feeling Good Lewis. Because of them and the other 100 plus patrons, I can do what I do. All right, sit back, relax, and enjoy my time with Paul. to unplug and play games around the table. Greetings, friends and floorheads to Tabletop Talk from Third Floor Wars. If you love tabletop gaming, you are in the right place. Listen as Craig delivers in-depth discussions and interviews with game designers, creators, insiders, and experts. Learn from the people making and playing the role-playing, miniature, and board games you love. Howdy friends, Craig here. My guest today is Paul Michener the creator of the RPG Liminal. Liminal is described as a tabletop role-playing game about those on the boundary between the modern-day United Kingdom and the hidden world, the world of secret societies, magicians, a police division investigating 40 and crimes, fake courts, werewolf gangs, and haunted places where the walls between worlds are thin. Wow, Paul, welcome to the third floor. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> so, Paul, obviously, we're going to jump into Liminal here in a little bit. But before we do, I'd like to get a sense of your origin story. So at some point, there was a time where you knew nothing about role-playing games, and then it was first exposed to you. Can we go back there? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, my first story is basically older kid at school who I think one year up actually sold me uh, the Dungeons and Dragons basic and expert sets and I was just devouring that you know the stories and I had of course the nice introduction with the sort of page turning thing and that was quite a good job that I had devoured it because it turned out hey yeah let's have a game session I was DM so I was oh, running yeah. the game so I ran before I played so um so you something that uh, kids younger than us don't realize is when we got these books right at this time, eighties uh, and nineties, we uh, or late seventies, even um, we didn't have the internet. We didn't have bulletin boards. You know, we just had, we had the books and we figured it out together. Um, do you remember kind of, you know, what young Paul was doing to kind of wrap his head around this with nothing to work from, but the literature itself? I think I was, I mean, it's a case of, I think I made, and again, I've still got this habit of doing that with a new game. 
making extensive notes on the game mechanics. So I've got sort of a cheat sheet or a cheat sort of dozen pages as you're doing it, depending on the complexity of the game. And then, of course, one thing I was really into as a kid was drawing maps. So it was a case of, yeah, draw a map. And I thought, oh, this is good. It's a map drawing game for the, the, you know, the dungeon master there. And, you know, then I led people through this, well, adventure where I don't know what the premise was exactly, but they were were crossing a desert full of skeletons and zombies. Ripped off from the Hobbit, there was a river where if you fell in it, there was, you know, you'd become paralysed. And there was a magic item shop for some reason in the middle of this desert. (laughs) And what the players, you know, young teenage kids, as you would, they weaponised the water used it to knock over the magic item shop. (laughs) And then I think I ended the first session with the owner of the shop, who, of course, was, you know, a magic user, came after them flying, captured the entire party in the web, and that was the end of the session. And (laughs) everyone was passing notes to each other at school, sort of over the next week going, oh, no, how are we going to get out of this? And there was sort of a list of sort of choices they could do that, you know, talk away out of it, just give up. Beg. <laughs> That's really That's funny. I, and I was hooked. You, you know what's amazing about that, Paul? You know, as I talk to different creators and people that have played role-playing games for a while, and, and we go through the origin story piece, I'm amazed at how quickly we are transported back, you know, yes. dozens of years, you know, decades, and we're there in the desert, knocking over the magic shop and getting caught in the web of the magic user. It's something that is truly unique about the hobby. I think so, and I think, about was, you know, your first time doing it, you just don't forget yeah. Maybe it's the resonance of those early memories that sort of power us on forward. I, I think I, without question. So, Paul, D and D was your first exposure. Now, do you remember when the world got larger for you? Do you remember what was kind of next, or the next game that really had an impact on the you? next game that had an impact? Let's see. I mean, there are, of course different people running games with this sort of teenage age group, including things like Paranoia, and Paranoia was one. Cyberpunk was another. I think mm-hmm. then I got into seriously into Call of Cthulhu and then where things really opened up. So for a long time, I was you know, living in living in different countries. So when I came back to you know, England, to Sheffield, actually, in 2007, that's when I went to my first convention. And that's the case when we sing, oh, gosh, there's there's so many different games out there. And that really opened my eyes to it. I also found the convention experience quite addictive. And soon I was just playing everything, really. (laughs) And then it's a case of, oh, good, that's good. So I got really seriously into Fate, for example, for a while and things like that. And then it sort of opened up to more, I suppose, more indie influences as well, because that's where I first discovered those. Did you find yourself then kind of like being drawn towards the more indie games, some of the smaller games or some of the um, uh, more ahead of, ahead of the curve games in that in that case? I think so. Yeah, I think there's definitely a while where I was interested in doing that. You know, things that were weakening the GM role so they don't put magic item shops in the middle of the desert, you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> and then, you know, and then I sort of bounce back before, backwards and forwards between that and a more sort of trad type of approach. I mean, it was also a case of I'm looking for my next hit. I'm looking for, oh, this game's amazing. Yeah. yeah, this is my great love. So when you when you were devouring these games, Paul, and, and picking them up and taking notes on them, as we've learned, uh, as you're trying <laughs> yeah. to gronk around it, what tended to be um, the magnet? Was it the mechanics? Was it the setting? Was it both evenly? I think I like things that are working really nicely in tandem. 
in that sense. So that sounds like a cop out answer, doesn't it? But I think it's no, the, it's the combination of things that draws it to me. So again, taking fate, I first saw that in Spirit of the Century, and I thought, yeah, okay, that's good. It's a great pulp game. Now I think I next came across it in again going quite indie here, going to the, do you know the game Diaspora? Mm-mm. So it's a science fiction, very early, you know, pre-Fate Core science fiction version of Fate. And that drew me in there because, again, the way the mechanics could be modelled and modified to right. fit that setting. And I like that kind of thing. I mean, another game that I was really into was Rain. So that was a fantasy thing with the one-roll engine. And later on, Wild Talents, which is the superheroes version, and again, that's, again, just seeing that type of, I suppose, modelling of the fiction, if I, you know, to put it that way, that's that's what I'm into. That's my thing. And I think as well, I mean, the other thing there, both of those things, I mean, that got me my start in writing RPGs. I'm probably jumping ahead with questions here. That's okay. <laughs> so, of course, I started off writing things, you know, for other people. So right. with Wild Talents, I thought, oh, wouldn't it be cool if it was a sort of, greek demigod type setting in you know ancient greece and i pitched this to arc dream and weirdly they said yes <laughs> so that came out as sort of i think a you know something like a 40 something 40 page pdf <laughs> that's which funny was we've had a couple it, yeah it paid it paid for emergency dental treatment well that's good <laughs> which is you know not not a really glorious use of the first paycheck but it's better than not having the money to pay for that. <laughs> that is very, very true. We've had a couple of those guys on on the show. They're they're a wonderful group over there at Arc Dream. Yeah, they, they are they are they are really good people. So for you, Paul, um, you know, it's one thing to be a GM or a DM, you know, create worlds, um, and, and it's another thing to say, I want to create things and put it out there to a much larger audience, right? Start writing for Arc Dream, things like that. Do you have a sense what drove you past that boundary and, and made you really want to to get published and and to get stuff out there? I suppose one one start, I mean, what I always tell people, which I'm not sure is true, but I'll tell you the story anyway, is it's I, I seriously over prep. Interesting. So it's a case of starting off the impetus for, again, this ancient Greek gods with wild talents was thinking, oh, you know what? That'd be a cool thing to run as a convention one shot. Right. Let's look into the background. Oh, gosh, you know, I've got sort of 40 pages of notes on doing this. <laughs> And now I've got the just wrote a game. <laughs> I've, got, I've, written, I've, I've written it. So, and then when I've done that, I thought, well, you know what? It couldn't hurt to just ask and see if that can be put out there. Let's make the pitch, and then of course polish it up. Because I mean, you say that's a game. Of course, it's half a game, really. But it's already been play tested a few times. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. So it was just, again, we're back to you taking notes on how you learn the game, and then suddenly you just realized that you'd actually written a supplement. Yeah, it was sort of. Yeah, so it's accidental. That's my that's my story. And I'm sticking to it. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic! So, guys, the Insider Insight series is my opportunity to sit down with designers, developers, artists, writers, and creators, and learn how they approach their work. I try to understand their process, inspiration, and methods for crafting their creations. That's what we're going to do with Paul today. We're going to take a quick break, and we get back from this break. Let's talk about liminal. We'll be right back. This is Sean. You may have heard of me from such movies as Brett and Sean Go to Illinois, Two Motorcycles, One Stick of Dynamite, and Gaming and BS, What Kind of RPG Podcast Is That? 
After my NFTs were stolen, I decided to become a patron of Third Floor Wars. The content is great, and it costs me less than a good shot of liquor. So consider becoming a patron. It may just land you your next big role. Head over to patreon.com forward slash third floor wars. Tell Craig Sean sent you. So my listeners have heard this story a million times, Paul, and I'm going to subject you to it. I, um, I took about a 22 year break from role playing. Uh, was a hobby that I loved as I finished up college and then just kind of stopped. And um, when COVID hit, I was like, you know what I really miss doing is role playing. And I ended up getting back in it and, and the world had changed. Uh, when I left, there was D&D and GURPS right? And maybe champions. Uh, when I come back, it's like, holy cow, like there are, there's just games everywhere and people don't have to be, you know, secretive about playing them. <laughs> you don't have to go to the underpass and say, it's Hey, do you like, it's D&D? suddenly cool, isn't it? It's exactly. Cool. It's, 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 it's amazing. But what was, what's neat, Paul, is that there's, I don't know, maybe a dozen different games that as I started exploring this brand new world kept coming up in conversation and liminal was one of them. Like oh, wow. people say, Craig, have you checked out Liminal? Craig, have you looked at Liminal yet? And, you know, I, I went over to the to the site and the, the art looks gorgeous and stuff like that. So I don't know, maybe about a year, year and a half ago, Paul, I bought it. Um, I haven't had a chance to run it yet. Um, so I've been dying to have this conversation. So uh, that's enough, enough about me. Nobody wants to hear me talk. So, Paul, for those listening that have never seen or played Liminal, can we give them an idea of what the game is? Sure. So so the I suppose the actual game process is you are people so there's a world where, yeah, there's the mundane world. Going in between this, more or less ignored by people, are fairies, vampires, magicians, ghosts, things like that. Most people just go on with their usual lives. However, there's some people who come across things like that, can't ignore them. Maybe they're seriously caught up in it. You know, they might be werewolves or magicians. And that said, they're not part of the hidden world and it's sort of politics, not fully. You know, they've got a foot in both camps. Right. So they are liminals. And the interesting thing there is one concept, sort of a high concept, is they, they're like family because most people in the world, whether mundane or hidden, aren't going to get them. Interesting. So they've sort of found each other. They form a group called a crew. And then in the game, the crew's got a sort of, you know, a purpose that you decided in character creation. It might be saying helping people who are caught up, you know, in the hidden world and victims of supernatural predators or something like that. It might be something else. And then essentially the scenario here is involving keeping track of, well, and then you run through cases where mm-hmm. I've tried to give very firm game advice on what you do with cases and released a few of them. And that's the idea of something where there's an investigative component and then something you've got to do, you know, something that needs solved. Yeah, it, it, it's it's really fascinating. And, and in some ways, what I thought was neat about it, Paul, is it felt very new but familiar, right? So, yeah. you know, we've, we've seen this concept before of, you know, a veil, a thin line between the supernatural and the, and the not supernatural. Um but but the crew angle on it, I thought, was very, very interesting. And the built-in... Um, mechanics to say, this is what you do, right? Um, Something that, you know, 
is is a little bit more what's the word um not prescriptive but a little bit more structured and what's funny about that is that it might when i came back right so again going the world i left everything was everything was moving towards do whatever you want and you know the, the things are wide open when i come back i was fascinated to see how there was there was more structure put into place and i was surprised how much i loved it so that's really interesting so paul i want to go back in time so at one point liminal did not exist right and if i were going to the to the paul museum the liminal museum and you know we start at the very beginning as we go through the exhibits where would i see the first what's the first exhibit about so what is where's the seed of this idea the first time it popped in your head i suppose it's a case of me trying to play around with some game mechanics and okay. just trying to think okay i want this idea of you know some sort of structure I want to say what happens when you fail a role. I want a little bit of currency to spend in terms of ways of not being completely at the mercy of the dice, but also not being too prescriptive about that either, not making it completely you know, narrative in that sense. And so I was playing around with the game mechanics. And then I thought, again, independently, you know, again, I'm hugely interested in things like history and folklore. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if you got the impression going through the liminal book, but it's about almost local history of different places right. and how to turn those into essentially creepy stories. And then putting those two together, that's when it really came to that because it seemed to fit perfectly. Some adjustments, and of course, a lot of the yeah, a lot of the traits in the game. I thought let's make that seriously flavoured towards that. Right. Let's sort of scrap these bits where i was having it fairly neutrally and just make everything flavor it's very interesting that the mechanics kind of came first and then you know other loves and interests of yours then got woven in with it did you know from the beginning that this was going to be a game that i want other people playing or did it just start off diddling around and then became a game you wanted to 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 offer others okay so i mean i'll say first of all it's not my first game for a while and I've always got things in the sort of, yeah, when I'm writing for games and writing games, there's things I should be working on and things I diddle around with in the background. Right. So for quite a while, it was this sort of diddling around project. And then, of course, I got more and more interest in bringing this into completion. <clears throat> and actually, the impetus for the initial launch of it in the Kickstarter was suddenly realising there was one month where I'd be on strike for three weeks. <laughs> So, firstly, lots of time. Secondly, yeah. Hang on a sec. I need. I need. I need an injection of money. Isn't that funny? Yeah. So <laughs> that really. I mean, that puts it into second gear at that point, right? Yeah, absolutely. So it becomes more <laughs> urgent. Yeah, fascinating. So I've got my copy of Liminal now, right? Liminal. Jeez, uh, I've got my copy now, and I were to pull that off of the shelf. Uh, but then I was also break into your house and steal all your notebooks and find some of your earliest documentation as you were kind of working through the game and, and the, it was starting to come together. I'd be curious if I were to compare the two, what stayed the same? So what did we see early on as you were working on this, Paul, that survived all of the iterations that are in that printed book now? I think so. First of all, we had the 2D6 dice mechanic and... The spending will was there early on, so that's there. In terms of sort of some of the ideas of places and things like that, most of the things I worked on there made it into the book. 
Wow. It's a case of looking up things. So that was, yeah, that came quite cleanly. Things that were discarded, things that happened in playtesting that just didn't work mechanically. So I think it had a thing where you could spend will to soak damage. <laughs> and that just thinking, hang on a sec, if you've got that, why do you have endurance as well? You know, so, right. okay, sorry, that's a very specific thing. But of course, a lot of the things you found in playtesting, I mean, it worked at the high concept. There's lots of specific, specific things that needed tweaking. So as you go through those iterations, Paul, um, one of the things I keep hearing from creators like yourself is that there was something towards the end that you either added or took away that finally made everything fall together, right? So the game, you know, you're working on the game, you're going on the game, and then suddenly you added something or took something away and went, oh, oh, it's it's ready. Like, th that was it. Uh, did that happen with this? Was there, was there one or two things that um, kind of made it... Um, uh, ready for the world? One of the things, I think one of the last things, actually, so two points here. One of the last things before sort of, you know, showing it to other pe people was thinking, okay, I need to drill down to think, okay, what's this really about? And that's where the crew concept came on. So that was quite a late addition. The other thing was, hang on, looking at it mechanically, why doesn't everyone just eventually learn magic or something? Mm -hmm. uh, so this idea of the focus of a character, whether they're magician or determined or tough, that was very, very late. Interesting. And then there are other things saying, well, there should be traits for tough and determined if I'm doing that. And that was actually, I think, a sort of question for one of the backers. They're going to be traits for that. And I think, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. We'll have that in. <laughs> thanks for backing. Yeah, thanks for backing. <laughs> <laughs> um, so as you're going through the playtesting process, which which can be an, an arduous process, both um, from time consuming as well as emotional too, uh, getting that initial feedback on your baby. Um, is there anything you can think of um, that came specifically from playtesting that you thought had a huge impact? So I think from playtesting, there's firstly, as an interesting thing in the cases, it might be my style, but the cases are actually very short. Mm -hmm. And I found actually running through a case with people can be over in a couple of hours. So it's interesting in terms of noticing that and running a case in a sort of four-hour con slot. It's a case of, oh, we're over in two hours. What should we do now? So that was an interesting observation that came from playtesting. Yeah. And then, of course, you've got a lot of local sort of tweaks to things. I mean, I also, also learned a lot more about playtesting. So, of course, there's things that are coming back from other people. Right. It's not enough for me to GM it, seeing how they engage with it and then seeing, OK, that explanation that was absolutely clear to me and that's how I run it. That hasn't come across. So after your experience of playtesting the game, Paul, um, what changed for you as far as how you playtest? So now when you do playtests for things that you work on now versus when you did it before, what did, what did you learn in that process that changed how you playtest? Yes, yeah, so that's a good question, Craig. So, I mean, what I tend to do, I think, is... I think maybe playtesting a bit earlier rather than thinking, oh, look, I've accidentally written a book. I should playtest it. Sort of being a bit more intentional towards it. Right. So it's a case of running different things. So in terms of looking at it from the GM point of view, GMing a one shot and GMing sort of a series, if the game's meant for a series and not just one shots. So getting that variety of experiences. I mean, the other thing is I don't like altering mechanics mid-play. So yeah. doing a series of one-shots first is helpful before doing anything longer. 
I think there's that sort of intentionality going into that. That's interesting because that gives you by doing the series of one shots, it allows you to to curve some of the edges so that you're not, you know, breaking the game mid campaign. Yeah, that's the idea. Interesting. Very, very interesting. Um, book is out there. Um, supplements start to to arise and we're going to spend time talking about the supplements. But what has in your mind now that you have a, an impressive library of things available for the game, have any of those changed what the game is for you? Um, so is the game different now because of all of the other things that you've put out for it? I think that I think so. So there's I mean, of course, I've got other people involved in writing mm-hmm. and they're putting twists on things saying, oh, I didn't see it that way. But you know what? That's really cool. So. Yeah, so again, sort of, there's Neil Gow's book on London, which really made me think, okay, he's seeing it that way. But even more than that, I think the Becky Anderson's book on werewolves, which is out soon, reading that, it's a case of, okay, she's developed this sort of werewolf mythology from the werewolf point of view, and how how the wolves see the other factions. So almost one faction in the book, uh, you know, the Jaeger family who are trying to unite the werewolves, she had things from their point of view and saying, okay, you can see their point. They're threatened on all sides. And you know what? From the werewolf point of view, people like the Order of St. Bede, they're not just sort of, you know, people who happen to be in the church who are know a bit of magic and are trying to help. They're fanatics out to exterminate the werewolves. And just seeing that different point of view yeah. is really good. How odd is it, Paul, to... to- see people run with your ideas to have created a world and a concept and a premise and then to see other other people uh create supplements for it it was really weird i think the first time because of course liminal was my first really big game yeah in terms of success and seeing people who i'd had no contact with (laughs) posting something on social media saying hey check out this game and sort of or talking about their experiences playing it and it's sort of okay it's it's bigger than me now. That's good. Yeah. But it's a, there is a little bit of saying, oh, I don't control it now, but that's a good thing. Right. Right. Um, so the other thing that I find interesting too is, you know, when, when the baby goes out, right. When it's out there in the wild, it's no longer just yours anymore. Um, and to, there's a certain degree of, of control lost. Um, was there anything that came back that surprised you? So something said in a review or some uh, comment made by something that, that really you didn't see coming and it, it doesn't have to be good or bad. Right. But it's just a way that someone looked at the game that you that had never crossed your mind. I mean, I think in terms of firstly, people being really interested in the mechanics of it, that sort of surprised me because of course, I mean, okay, you've read it. It's pretty light mechanically. Yeah, yeah, there's some interesting things going on, but I didn't think the mechanics were the main emphasis. And then people saying, "Oh, wow, those are amazing mechanics," and okay, that wasn't that. And then other people saying, "My God, this is the most British game I've ever read." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it comes with tea. Yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. You know, it's funny as an American reading it. Um, yeah, I could see that. I could see that. It, um, that's very funny, but I, it's not one of the first things I would have said about no, 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 it. Absolutely. I mean, the other thing, interesting <laughs> thing is, of course, there's you know, a lot of American people who, who like it. Yeah. Sometimes they're running it in Britain. Sometimes they're sort of moving it to the States. Both are good. 
interesting thing is there's a relatively big Japanese fan group. Interesting. No which, kidding. Yeah, I wouldn't have guessed. And, and is there an English an English edition of it, or did they just grab the uh, English version? Got the is English there a Japanese I mean, there edition? Be, there will be a translation coming. Interesting. 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 Um, do you remember the moment, and maybe, maybe it was the Kickstarter, Paul, when you realized that this game was was going to be the biggest thing that you'd been a part of at that point? It was it was it was the Kickstarter moment. Yeah, because it's a case of it's going to the stage of well, dare I ask for more than a thousand in the Kickstarter? And um, I mean, the other thing I wanted here, and we haven't mentioned yet. Well, you've mentioned it is is the art. Oh, I'm yeah. talking to you know Jason Benker, so it's all one person doing it, and he is absolutely fantastic. It's so evocative. Yes, he's, he's, he's he's brilliant, and I've worked with him on a smaller scale with projects in the past. But actually working with him on this scale and having the budget to bring something like that out, that was a big drive. When did you when did you guys first come across? When did you first cross paths with him? So again, this was the older game that I, I co I co-wrote with a guy called Graham Spearing, who'd previously been in touch with sort of Jason. And that this was a game called Age of Arthur, which was based on fate. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Arthurian Arthurian role playing. And again, Jason sort of did the art for that. I mean, we didn't have enough to pay him more than, say, you know, one picture per chapter. Because this is pre-crowdfunding. Yeah. That's how long ago we're talking. <laughs> ages ago, Paul. Yeah, back in the dark ages. <laughs> back when you had to have had to have money to make stuff. <laughs> That's and funny. So, 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 and of course, these pictures are brilliant. And I mean, I've got some pictures, some of these pictures from Age of Arthur still on my living room wall. Yeah, I should have brought some. I should have brought some up to, yeah, show the podcast. Maybe not. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't translate well to audio. Yeah, so, yeah I'm, I'm aware of on a sort of purely audio thing. I'm now talk, we're, talk, we're now talking about art. But anyway, I came across him from that and sort of stayed in touch of, over a couple of small projects. And this one really brought us close together. So he was doing a patron with a series of, I suppose, urban fantasy artworks. And I thought his style would be perfect. And that was going to be my next question, Paul. I was very curious as you start collaborating with with Jason and, he, and you know, he starts making stuff. You're obviously giving some some direction, but also I would assume trusting the artist because you guys, you know, had known each other at that point. Did the game change at all? Did Like, did he have an impact on the game outside of just making it beautiful? There's definitely an impact from Jason, yeah, in terms of sort of how I'm seeing things, how I'm writing other things. Mm-hmm. There was one picture. I mean, there's pictures where I thought, you know what, that's an NPC. Let's do that. Or let's even adjust the description of that NPC. Nice. Or actually, or someone who was just presented completely neutral in gender terms, who he painted as, I think, you know, a young black woman. And that's just changing the way you're seeing that character, of course. Yeah. It's perfect. It fit perfectly. It wasn't what I pictured, but it absolutely fits. Yeah, that, that, and, it, and it ties to kind of what we talked about, about the supplements, right? Having other yeah. people just like inject themselves and become part of your world. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, yeah, really interesting to do, seeing what people, yeah, what people are bringing to it. But also, yeah, I'm not an expert on everything. So that's a good thing to see as well. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, that's great. So, guys, we're going to take a break. When we get back from this break, I want to dive into uh, the mechanics of this, because Paul mentioned um, every time someone would talk about the game, the premise was the first thing that they talked about. Uh, but the second thing is they said would say to me, Craig, you're going to love the mechanics because it doesn't get in the way. So let's talk about what those mechanics are. We'll be right back. You like science fiction, right? You love playing games, maybe even role-playing games. But what if you can't get your friends together for a game night? If you love games like Mothership or Orbital Blues, check out Dead Belt, a card-based space western solo strategy RPG about skillful and desperate scavengers picking over the remains of junked starships in hopes of a juicy payday. In it, you deal with lurking dangers, push your luck, and walk away with enough cred to keep on flying. Of course, you might get eaten by lurking aliens, or run afoul of rival scavengers, or face the murderous ghosts of long-dead spacers. No one said life in the dead belt was going to be easy. For more information on this and all of Sean and Abby Drake's games, swing over to a acoupleofdrakes.com. The link's in the show notes. Um, much like the premise, Paul, the mechanics didn't seem like they were new, but they were familiar. And so, and now that we understand, you know, from the last segment that, you know, the mechanics kind of came first, um, let's go back to that point. So you're, you're fiddling around, you've got this idea that like, I want some mechanics. What were the first early concepts mechanically? Okay, so the first early concept is, I think it's looking at lots of different games and thinking, okay, you know, the traditional RPG approach is you've got, you know, you've got attributes or, you know, ability scores, you've got skills, you might, and then you've got funky extra abilities. And the interesting question is, do you really need all three? And what skill goes with what ability score? And okay, this is not far from being the first RPG to do this. It's a case of, okay, let's jettison one of those three. So going back from skills and then thinking I wanted it to be intuitive to play. So what's a little bit scalable. So scalable means you're rolling and adding. What's a nice intuitive mm-hmm. thing to do? And again, as seen in lots of other games, 2D6 plus. And then thinking, okay, what do you want someone's competent skill to be? And what do you want their level of success to be at that skill? So it's a case of that's where I thought, well, competent, your skill level one, you've already, you can do it. And you probably want it around a 50% or I wanted it around a 50% at that sort of minimum level. So let's be generous and make it a little bit more than 50% because of, well, human psychology. So then I've got the sort of eight plus thing. So that gave me the success levels. Then I'm starting thinking, okay, what do I want to happen on a failure on a roll? And... There's the whole sort of thing of say yes or roll the dice and always make something interesting happen. I think for me, it's more usually make something interesting happen on a failure. 
yeah, sometimes you just screw up. But of course, you don't want failures to stop progress. So they have got this idea of things you can do if you fail. You know, hey, maybe you're trying to get up a cliff and you damage yourself getting up rather than failing to get up the cliff and things like that. So getting that table of sort of failures is there. And then, and then of course, there's the idea of, do you want to be completely at the mercy of the dice? Do you want a little bit of control? And that's where the will and spending will comes in. And also, that seemed very thematic once it was named will and going into this type of setting. So the, the table of failures and, and what to do with a failure was interesting. Is there an influence there, Paul? So if, if we were to forensically go back in time, do you have a sense of, of where you got a whiff of that idea or did it just come from you whole cloth? It's, I mean, it's there. It's almost there. In, it's there implicitly in some older games. You know, even things like some of the basic role-playing type things. But I yeah. think probably the clear implicit thing is from things like, you know, Apocalypse World type things which are also, of course, 2D6+. Plus. And then, of course, they've there, as you know, there's the three levels of success. You know, there's the failure, GM makes a move, complications, and then success. But, of course, for me, the well-written ones tell you what happens on the mixed ones and maybe tell you what happens on the failures. And I thought, let's bring some of that tech in. Very, very cool. Um, let's talk about magic. And oh, yeah, that's of, a thing that we haven't done yet, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And let's talk about, first off, I mean, obviously, I would imagine when you've decided what the skin was going to be for these mechanics, you knew magic was going to be involved. Um, but, you know, coming up with a magic system, whether it be just thematic or mechanically, is a big deal. Um, when did that start to form and what did it look like at the very beginning? I suppose at the very beginning, it's a case of, me thinking about magic, do I want to... I think I had something more freeform at the beginning. But the idea was, I wanted it, how shall I put it, subtle, tied in with the world, and not zappy. You know, you're not going to go around casting fireballs in the middle. If, you could, if you're a weather magician, you might be able to call down lightning bolts. If you go through a whole lot of rigmarole first in terms of altering the weather to suitable weather and then doing that... And then I suppose it's a case of each of the schools of magic. Yeah, they're coming from different sources. So clearly there's ghosts. You want things involving ghosts and things like that. And maybe, yeah, let's have some speaking to the dead. Okay, necromancy is one. Oh, the, there's ties to the landscape. So let's have geomancy. And again, the weather alteration. Some people want something a bit flashier, and that's a nice way of doing it. And so basically thinking about things like that, thinking about maybe bits of literature in urban fantasy and things like that. So I'd be curious, Paul, as, as you start to put that together, obviously one of the dangers of superpowers, right, whether it be magic or anything, is um, an opportunity for those that don't utilize that mechanic feeling behind, um, you know, within the crew itself. Uh did you find that to be something that you were worried about? So if you had two characters in the crew, one was very magic heavy, one wasn't, was there any concern about, um, I hate the word balance, but uh, equating the spotlight? I think, I, think so. I think so. I mean, in terms of, that's the other thing we're talking about, the focus idea of being tough, determined, or magic or magician. If you're tough, you know, you've got a lot, fair bit extra endurance and... Not only that, you can, you know, some of the most powerful things in terms of, I suppose, hitting people hard, for want of a better way of putting it, tie into that. So, I mean, a tough werewolf is pretty much unstoppable in the game. They've got so many bonuses, you know, they're going to run through combat. And 
determined is good because people are going to succeed a lot. So I suppose the benefit from the, the balance, if you like, or the spotlight sharing, I think is a better way of putting it. You know, tough people are going to dominate in sort of combat. Mm-hmm. Determined people are going to excel in, I suppose, most situations. They're going, they're going to fail less than others. They can always, they can bring a bit more will in order to succeed. And then magic is another one of the, is the sort of third side of this triangle. Interesting. And and was there was there ever more than three foci? Did it start off bigger with their foci that got dropped? No, it was it starts off with no foci. Like I said, that was very late in the start, design process. Oh, right. I guess um when so when foci came into play, right? Was it did was it always three or no, was it these three? It was it was pretty much always those three, yeah. No kidding. Let's expand out a little bit, Paul. Um, you you get the book out there uh, and you start creating supplements. In your mind, did you know what was going to be next? Did you know whether it was going to be, you know, uh, case ideas? Was it going to be world building? Uh, did you know where you wanted to go after? I think I wanted to go with things with world building because, of course, the Kickstarter kind of took off more than I expected. <laughs> it's a case of consulting people, you know, talking to people who thought, okay, they're going to want to be involved here and trying to basically come out with ideas for supplements that could be announced here. So it was almost seat of the pants, but there were certain things I always wanted <laughs> to do. Yeah, so I always wanted books on vampires and werewolves within the setting because they're uniquely different. I definitely wanted more in terms of a sense of place. Mm-hmm. I also wanted a nice steady run of the case notes, the adventures. And... Yeah, also, you know, things like Focus on the Fairies was another one. And then this overview of lots of places. Because people won't say, oh, no, this book, this list of places in the book, it looks like places Paul Mitchin has been on holiday. <laughs> and, yeah, guilty. But this is why I have other authors and also we've got... So this is just one grand... One grand scheme to use a tax write-off for all of your vacations because it's all work, right, Paul? Well, the other idea I'll be knocking around is the liminal pub guide. (laughs) That's fantastic. (laughs) Before we could do that. Oh, boy. So, Paul... um, there's people listening right now that we've piqued their interest and they, and they're, they're going to want to check out the game. And for those of you that are there um, first, go to the website. Um, we'll have a link down below if you scroll down and you'll be stunned. You'll be stunned because immediately, like we talked about the artwork and uh, the evocative uh, language that's used to talk about the game is going to get you hooked. Not just me, just talking here with Paul, but a lot of times when someone says, you know what, I think I want to check this out. It can be a little daunting, especially when we have a situation where there's, you know, several different things outside of the core book to buy do you have any recommendations paul so if someone's here like look i'm going to get the core book and maybe pick up two or three other supplements uh do you have any sense of what good ones for the beginner are i'd probably i'd start off with uh, i mean the core book of course do has to do ha- does have two case notes in there mm-hmm. so that'll be enough i'd say pax londinium if you're interested in london and it's also nice to have something extra but also i'll say with the adventures the case notes they're usually one or two dollars. So you could almost pick up everything, anything you fancied there. So I don't know. I mean, in terms of more beginner friendly adventures, probably Prodigal Son would be a good one for beginners. Ghosts of Glencoe as well is a good sort of starting one. And then if you're into London, there's two adventures that are keyed into the Paxton and Dinium settings. Those would be obvious ones to pick up there. I mean, I should say as well, there is a free quick start. 
which is you know, basic mechanics, some characters, and again, a scenario that's not anywhere else. So, I mean, I'd say if anyone's interested, start with the quick stars. So, uh, last thing I want to ask you, Paul, and this is something I ask everybody, um, I'm always curious what you're consuming right now. So, is there any RPGs out there, any games, movies, books, or anything that just recently have, like, just cons- that you have started consuming and can't get enough of? Have you, do, what is your current, uh, current love that's not liminal? Oh, gosh, that's an interesting question. So, I mean, it's because RPGs, we were talking about playing a variety of things and me chasing the big hit. What's my yeah. What's my great love? So probably my great love might be, I don't know, the One Ring is pretty damn good. It is and good. That sort of, that, that's, that was definitely my great love for a while with the previous edition. So I am going to say that for RPGs, although going in different directions... Again, I've been recently playing with Glorantha, mm-hmm. and I've also I've done a fair bit of Knights Black Agents, you know, spies versus vampires. And lately, I'm getting into Delta Green, coming back, circling back to the Arc Dream again. So that's it for RPGs. In terms of books, I mean, I'm a lot of actually. I mean, some of my main reading, yeah, there's there is some urban fantasy there. A lot of what I'm reading at the moment is science fiction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm thinking especially authors like sort of. Things like the Expanse book, oh, they're so good. like Alistair Reynolds, you know, these are very, very good. And again, actually, I mean, in terms of this, the Expanse is a good example of, I suppose, well, they are literally a crew on the Rosinante. Yep. It's also crew as family. Mm-hmm. And that's, again, that's something that I always find evocative. That really does draw me in. Did you get a chance to see the series? Oh, yeah, the, ser- the series is also very good. I, I was really surprised, Paul. In fact, so surprised, and this is some, not everybody agrees with this. Um, I think there was a, a moment, maybe around season two, season three, where the series got better than the books. Yeah, I think that's I think that's fair. I think that's a fair observation because they've got sort of more involvement in the characters. They're going in, they're following the broad strokes, but going in slightly different directions. It's a case of you seeing the series characters ahead of the book characters. I mean, I suppose the f- first thing that drew me into the series is it really got the feeling of being in zero gravity. They got the science right. Yeah, with the magnetic boats and that. And it's just that feeling of being in zero gravity. I actually haven't seen anywhere before. No, no. The, uh, the way that they handle ship combat in the show, yeah. um, it's obvious that um, – uh, and it's really, you know, obviously there's two of them that wrote the books, but it's been it was Ty that's that has been super involved in the show itself. Right. Yeah, and, absolutely. You can tell there's author involvement in that because they're. Yeah. And I think that's the only reason why the show ended up being better than the books for me after all was said and done, though. The, it's a second iteration, isn't it, as well? It is. Sense. Exactly. 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 So that's fantastic. All right, Paul. So let's um, first of all, like I said, we're going to link to everything that we've talked about uh, below here in the show notes. Um, but if there's somebody out there that wants to get more Paul, where do they go? Well, you can find me. I mean, for example, you can find me on Twitter as the Tweedmeister. Uh, I've got a blog that I don't keep up to date as regularly as I should called the Imaginarium of Dr. Mitch. Nice. I'm sure I can, I'll send, I mean, I'll send Craig notes for these. So yeah, yeah, yeah. we'll have links to all of this. Yeah. So, okay. Thanks very much.
<laughs> okay, guys. I uh, Paul, this was great. I was really looking forward to this. Um, I am fascinated by your game. I can't wait to run it on the channel. Um, it's on. It's in the queue, along with games we already talked about. Delta Green is also in the queue as well. Um, but really, taking the time means a lot to me. No, thanks. No, I can't wait to see what you do with it. <laughs> All right. And for those of you that listen, this is the end, and you made it the whole way through. I appreciate you, too. Take care. episode subscribe to tabletop talk and share it with your friends check out our content on youtube and twitch follow us on twitter and facebook and stay updated on everything coming from third floor all the links are in the show notes take care floor heads Yeah, it, it's amazing. I was stunned by the art. Yeah, it's, 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 it's absolutely brilliant, isn't it? Yeah, it, it is. And it, and it, it really does a great, because you don't always see this with books. It does a great job of, of telling me what the game is. Yeah. Right. right? It's just so, so inter- integrated with it. Um, depending on how this goes, Paul, I might drop a break and we might go right into supplements. Let's just see how this goes. Okay, okay let's, just, let's just do it as we... Busy feeling, yeah. We're exactly. actually walking through this, aren't we? Which is good. <laughs> well, you're you're phenomenal, man. This is great. Yeah. Um. All right. I'll bring us back. Outstanding, Paul. Thank okay. You. Thanks, Craig. That was fun to do. Good. 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 Um. Yeah, we're going to make an assumption. There's there's people that have not heard of the game. Um, sure. So we'll start there, just kind of giving a... Because we're going to dive deep, right? So we can just give a headline on what the game is. Um, and then I really want to understand when what the origins of it yeah, were. Yeah, so where it go. clicked, because of course there's Perfect. a couple of strands here. Beautiful, beautiful. All right, I'll bring us back. So my readers... Or my readers... Let's try that again. still here wow um well the episode is over but if you're bored why not go to patreon.com and support the show for as little as a dollar a month yeah you can just scroll down scroll down and yeah get the link it's patreon that makes this and all of our other content possible don't you want to join the other floorheads on the patreon discord anyway Thanks for sticking around. Take care. Bye.